This is Profit from the Inside with Joel Block. Insights to give your business the inside track. And now, here's your host, Joel Block. The pandemic has wrecked havoc on almost every industry, some more than others. Many of the players in the industries are at risk for their very survival. And at a minimum, every player is dealing with labor problems along with a myriad of other issues. How is the transportation industry in our country dealing with this problem? To address those issues, Peter Pantuso. Peter, welcome to the show. Thank you, Joel. Great to be here. Well, you you guys are probably dealing with these problems, maybe at, at least as bad, if not worse than almost everybody else. I mean, you're, you're in the bus business, which, which is you run the biggest association of uh, bus companies in the country. And, you know, why don't you just lay out for us here real quick. What are some of the issues that these busing companies are dealing with? Yeah, they're, they're dealing with labor issues. They're dealing right now, obviously, with fuel. You know, the challenge has been obviously the, the increased cost of operating a bus company. You know, that's something they've been dealing with for a long, long time. But right now, the biggest issue, the number one issue in addition to fuel, is really labor. Getting, finding the right people and finding drivers. You know, you, you hear a lot about the driver shortage, like the rest of the worker shortage. You hear about it in the trucking industry. But I think our industry has been hit much, much harder when it comes to drivers. And I'll give you a reason. You know, when you look at our typical driver historically, they've been an older driver, second career a lot of people in their 60s, 70s, a lot of part-time drivers. And, and many of those folks sat home for almost two years without having any income. And they decided, you know, I've had enough. I think I'm going to take off. Others had to make money and they had to feed their families. So they went into other areas. And so we were left with a very small workforce of drivers. Now, as businesses coming back, I talk to companies every single day that tell me they're turning away more business than they're taking because they don't have enough drivers. It's really sad to see. So are, are there like uh, bus driver training schools that are turning people out or, or how do people learn how to be a bus driver? Yeah, there, there are some training schools, but a lot of times it's, uh, you know, you've maybe driven a truck or you've driven another commercial vehicle. Maybe you drove a school bus and now you're looking to drive another type of vehicle. And so you get into the motor coach side. Um, the school bus market is a good feeder for our industry and, and other trucking is a good feeder. You know, we're a different, we're a different kind of driver, right? A lot of, a lot of truck drivers don't want 55 people sitting behind them <laughs> as backseat drivers. I mean, I don't even like somebody sitting next to me telling me how to drive. So you've got to have that, that special ability, not only to drive a 45 foot vehicle and, and do it safely every single day, but also deal with the customers, which is a unique skill set that a lot of commercial drivers might not have. So it sounds to me like you're not a candidate to be one of those uh, drivers. <laughs> I don't. I don't think so. I don't think they want me driving or dealing with the people behind me. So what kind of? So what are we talking? We're talking about coaches. We're talking yeah. about school buses. What other kind of vehicles? You know, we're talking about other what we would call cutaways, thirty-five passenger vehicles, or anything bigger than sixteen passengers, as an example. Uh, all commercial drivers uh, required all have to be registered with the Department of Transportation, either at the federal level if they're going interstate or or with uh, or state departments of transportation. But, you know, virtually anything that moves people commercially are the people that we represent. Okay. And so, um, so what are you guys going to do about all these, uh, the, the driver shortage? I mean, I mean, how are that besides they can't keep turning away business forever. I mean, that's, and that's causing more problem because if there's an out of balance between supply and demand, then prices just keep going higher and higher. And we'll talk about pricing and, and other issues in a few minutes, but what are you going to do about that problem first? What are you recommending to your, to your uh, clients? 
Yeah, you know, one of the things we did is we we worked with one of our councils, Women and Buses Council, and, and they put together actually a driver hiring program that's available on our website, not only to our members, but to, to anyone in the industry with a lot of tips of how to hire drivers, advertisements that you can use, videos that you can run, you know, talking about where to go and look for drivers, what other avenues might be available to find a potential driver. So that's one way that we've been able to help. Um, a lot of companies, you know, look beyond just the driver pool, right? They also, they look at who's really good at customer service and they'll go out and try to teach those people to drive. Almost every bus company of any size has got some kind of a driver training program internally where they'll bring drivers in and, and, and train them themselves to be good bus drivers. How do companies manage uh, customer service? Not, not on the telephone, but like, how do they manage that people like their drivers? You know, I, I mean, how do they measure that? Yeah, well, you know, the driver measures it in part by by the kinds of reviews they get. A lot of companies do a post trip review. They want to know how the trip went, how the driver was, how that if they have an escort on the bus, how the escort did. Um, but a lot of drivers measure it by tips. And a lot of times, when you're on a charter or a tour somewhere, that the driver gets tips, you know, by the customers, just like you would on a cruise or 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 some other you know some other excursion. And so, if the tips are good, he did a, he or she did a very good job. That's so, one way of- so, so that's another one of the categories is, is like these uh, vacation uh, tour buses sure. where, I mean, I've been on many of these and, you know, you have a, usually a person that uh, speaks English very well. And maybe, maybe the driver does or doesn't, doesn't really matter. But, uh, but the two of them together are kind of are a team and they take the people around and, you know, right. show us what we want. And uh, I, I would say I, I've, I've probably 90% of the time had a wonderful experience with those kind of people. Well, they do, they do a great job. I mean, again, it's a special skill set. So when I look at the industry, at the motor coach industry, I really look at it in kind of three buckets. You know, we've got companies that, as we're describing, they're tour bus drivers, charter bus drivers. They're taking the group wherever they want to go. Maybe they're bringing a group here to Washington, D.C., where I am, you know, popular destination for school groups to come in the spring. Uh, maybe they're taking people up to Niagara Falls or going to see the leaves change in the fall. Or on ski trips, I know you're out in Colorado, maybe bringing folks out there. So that's the charter and tour bus sector. And then we've got commuter sector. A lot of people that commute into work every single day, especially pre-pandemic, and ride on private buses. Washington, D.C., again, a good example. There's about 20,000 people that commute in every single day on private buses. Uh, Back in 2019, that was the number. Today, it's only about 3,000. So from 20,000 to 3,000. And then the other third bucket or the third segment of the industry is that scheduled service. So it can be a, a Greyhound, a Megabus, but it's that point to point, city to city. But in rural America, a lot of times the bus is the only way to get to a major hub or a major destination or catch that flight out. You know, you take the bus from Milwaukee over to O'Hare to catch a flight. So those are the kind of the three buckets when we look at the motor coach industry, the private side that we look at. Let's, let's talk about bucket number two. Uh, are, are any of the members of your association like RTD, like the, those rapid transit districts that are part of cities, or are these only private companies? They're, they're, they're typically private companies. I've got members that do run some transit systems uh, or a part of a transit system, but typically our commuter buses are, are privately funded. Um, in a lot of cases, or not in a lot of cases, but in some cases, the city or the state subsidizes people coming into town and then hires those bus companies to do that. In Maryland, for example, uh, Maryland has a very robust bus program to get their citizens into work in D.C. every single day. Uh, there's about 15,000 people in Maryland that commute in on private buses, but it's part of a state-sponsored program. And they, so, and they 
they they uh, they work with private bus companies and hire them out. So you just said that the, in 2019 it was 20,000 people a day coming in on buses, and now it's down to 3,000. The Maryland thing must be separate from that. Why why did it drop so much? Like what what happened, and why didn't it come back when people start going back to work? Yeah, well here here in Washington D.C. it's a little bit it's a little bit unique. There's still most of the government is still shut down. Uh, almost every department, almost every agency that I talk to will tell me that, yeah, they might be back at a 10% level. Um, Department of Transportation is one we work with a lot. And, and the employees that I talk to over there say, yeah, we're required to be in at least one day every couple of weeks uh, if we can. So there's a lot of Washington where government office buildings sit mostly empty right now. And those are the primarily the commuters that were coming in on those private buses every single day. So what's the impact on the cities? I mean, cities, you know, if, if, if 17 or 20 or 30 or 50,000 people aren't coming in, because if there's a, a lot of people not coming on buses, they're not coming other ways either. So if people right. aren't coming into the city, what's the impact on restaurants? What's the impact on traffic, parking? I mean, what are you noticing? Yeah. So, tra- you know, as a, as a local, traffic is great and certainly much, much better than it used to be when everybody was coming in at one time. So that's a that's a plus side. But the city here has really been impacted. I mean, when I walk down the, the K Street, I'm an active walker. Uh, you know, I see business after business that's been shut down and mostly businesses that catered, you know, for breakfast, lunch, you know, throughout the day, shopping, you know, picking up cards. You know, those kinds of businesses are gone. They're two blocks away from where I live in D.C. There was a souvenir shop. And, and in the springtime and in the fall, There'd be four or five buses parked out in front as people were picking up souvenirs. That place closed. It had been open 30 or 40 years. Those are the kinds of things we're seeing around town. I mean, we're seeing some businesses come back, obviously some of the restaurants, but the ones that catered to somebody who was coming in all the time have had to close. And and I'll give you another example. I mean, you know, I have a number of doctors that I go to, you know, specialists in different areas for, you know, one thing or another. I mean, annual checkup, uh, you know, uh, my my eye doctor, et cetera, so many doctor's offices have also closed because their customers weren't coming into town. So they've moved back to their, you know, their suburban office, wherever that might have been in Virginia or Maryland. And I, and I, you know, I think things may be a little more, a little worse here than other places. I mean, I travel all over the country almost on a weekly basis now that things are back. And other places I've been to, people have no concept that things are that shut down here in Washington because in their cities, I was in Nashville. I was in Detroit a couple of weeks ago. Um, I've been in a couple other cities in the last five days. They were all up and mostly running. So things were pretty much back to normal. You think that uh, that it's ever going to come back or do you think that it, this is kind of going to be the new normal that people are going to be working at home? I mean, are they producing whatever they're supposed to produce or what's happening? That's a great that's a great question. You know, like we were talking to some real estate people because we we own our condo space here where my office is and you know, trying to get an assessment for what's happening to the office space in D.C. There's about a 20 percent vacancy rate in the height of uh, the recession. I think the vacancy rate was somewhere around four percent. So, you know, that kind of vacancy rate. And and so the question is, you know, is that going to be the same? I think it's going to be as bad for a period of time. And, and reason being, because people are going to stay home, they're going to continue to work from home at least, you know, two days a week or three days a week, whatever that new normal is. And, I, and I've said to the real estate people, I think that will change when some brilliant Harvard professor writes a story about how we're missing this productivity, the, the, the fact that we're not together in one place, we're not exchanging these ideas on the spur of the moment. You know, that doesn't necessarily happen over Zoom. If I have an idea or I, 
run into somebody at the coffee machine and say, hey, I meant to tell you about. Uh, that's not the thing I'm necessarily going to pick up the phone and call or, or, or ping somebody in my office. You know, it'll, I'll be on to the next task. So somebody at some point will write a story and say, look at what all we've lost since the pandemic. We need to be together again. Then everybody will start flocking back. You know, uh, I, I think that uh, management may say that, you know, some of the older guys may say that, but a lot of the younger people, yeah. uh, you know, are going to say, no, I'm, I'm actually more productive at home and, right. uh, you know, I do better and, you know, I mean, just different perspectives. And and then if somebody says you must come in, all of a sudden uh, work from home becomes an employee benefit and people are going to look for companies that offer what they prefer instead of something else. So uh, I don't I don't know. I, I don't I don't know the answer. I, I mean, I'm just talking here out loud, but no, I, I, I think I think you're right. I mean, that will be that will be the new norm. I mean, it'll be like giving a you know, a millennial, a dial phone and say, what do I, what do I do with it? I don't know how it works. Right. Which, which, which end do you put, which, which end do you put where? Exactly. (laughs) So, you know, the labor shortage, we're talking about it related to drivers, but what about related to their internal people, their, their mechanical staffs, their, their customer service staffs, their accounting staffs, their bookkeeping staffs. I mean, uh, this is what, what applies to all the listeners of our show because they all have all these different departments a couple of your departments are obvious to the drivers and the mechanics, yep. but all the internal stuff is the same as every other business. How are those uh, functions being affected? Yeah. You know, they're, I mean, every, every company I know in the motor coach industry, we, we represent about a thousand bus and tour companies. We also represent about 3000 people in the travel industry. These are people that would like a bus or a group to show up at their front door. So they could be restaurants, theaters, et cetera. But from everyone I talk to, they're all telling me the exact same thing. They're, they're short all of those positions that you mentioned. Everybody's doing double duty. You know, they're trying to trying to do more with less as they're trying to dig out of the pandemic. Um, so it's, it's it's a challenge. And again, that challenge won't go away. I know, you know, going back to the driver issue, people tell me, well, when are we going to pull out of this? When are we going to have enough drivers? You can't just turn the switch and get them back in the seat. You know, the other challenge, it doesn't matter what the position is, when we've lost those positions, whether people went into a gig economy or whether they decided to retire, you know, they were all skilled at whatever they did. They'd been doing it for a period of time. And, and you just can't put somebody in that position and expect them to do it at the same level, same pace, same level of expertise. So even when you replace them, it's going to take a lot longer for them to come up to speed and perform at the same level as that person that left who'd been doing it for 10 years, 15 years, 20 years. Yeah, I, I want to talk about inflation and, and pricing and some of those issues. But I first, I just want to come back to the mechanics because drivers and mechanics, that, that's one area or those are two areas. You can't ask a double duty of the people. Right. I mean, you can ask a telephone person to work extra hours or some other people can work, but a driver can only work a certain number of hours and mechanic, there has to be a certain amount of mechanics. I mean, is, is mechanics another problem that's slowing these buses down? Do they just not have enough of these people or what's happening? Yeah, totally, totally. Not enough mechanics. I mean, we've always had a driver and mechanic shortage, but now it's like it's on steroids. It's just not enough mechanics to to fix the buses when they need to be fixed. So, you know, it, it it's a that's our supply chain issue, right? It's not about getting parts. It's about having buses available for the supply chain, which is the traveling public. And if you don't have enough drivers, enough mechanics, that it slows it down. But I will tell you, you know, I talked to a bus operator, a fairly good sized company down in. Uh, in Alabama, not too long ago, a female owned, uh, does a great job with it. And she said that virtually everybody in her office 
from the front desk person to the to the clerks uh, all have their their commercial driver's license because she wants everybody to be able to step on that bus and do what they need to do to fill a gap. And that's how she's addressed the driver issue. And it's not necessarily about taking the receptionist and say, okay, you're you're going out on a three-day tour. But if there's a bus coming back and the driver's out of hours and he's an hour away, well, rather than get another driver and cut into his hours for the next day, she can send out the, you know, somebody else from the office staff and say, you know, can you bring that bus back for the last hour? That, that sounds so, like a like a pretty good solution for, you know, it's for, a, band, for, for a Band-Aid. Yeah, not, not, great, not for great, like a long term, but, but uh, it sounds really smart. Short. Is that something that you guys uh, put out there as a best practice or as a, do you suggest that to other members to do yeah, the we, same thing? I mean, because that sounds pretty yeah. good. As we hear those kinds of stories, we definitely let other members know, you know, we feature those kinds of stories in our publications and our in our newsletters to make sure, you know, that, that here's another option for you. Maybe it doesn't work for everybody, but it might work for two or three or four or five people or 50 people. Yeah. I mean, it sounds pretty smart. I mean, it certainly is a resourceful option. You know, as far as these mechanics go, um, a lot of there's a lot of discussion about leadership, about empowerment, how much you're, you empower people to do things. Do the bus companies empower the mechanics to say this bus may not leave the shop because it's not ready or is the some uh, manager override them and say it's going out anyway? I mean, how does that tend to work? Yeah, no, totally. I mean, the most important thing in the motor coach industry is safety, getting people from point A to point B and back safely. And, and if that mechanic, he or she finds anything wrong, you know, they've got an obligation and they, and they meet that obligation by saying, no, we're, we're not going to roll this bus. You know, we need a we need a new tire. We need a new part. We need a new whatever before that bus is going to go off the lot. And, and you know, one of the challenges now, I mean, going back to supply chain issues, I've got a lot of members who will tell me that, again, they could take more business on. But in addition to the driver shortage, they've got buses sitting on the lot because they're waiting for parts coming from China, coming from India, coming from wherever, because that bus has been sidelined because it's not safe. And until those parts come in, that bus isn't going anywhere. So, yeah, those, those mechanics have a big role, not only in fixing the bus, but also being, you know, the eyes and ears for that company to make sure that an unsafe bus isn't out on the road. How, how do people uh, deal with the issue of uh, this, whole, this whole psychological safety thing? In other words, where the mechanic says this bus is not safe and then the manager yells and screams, and scares the the person into submission. Uh, you, you know, I mean, that whole thing, the psychological safety requires a person to feel safe to be able to speak up. Right. And, and, you know, I mean, uh, I mean, it's like, uh, you know, there's a certain military style to the command chain and everything. And how, how do companies deal with that? Because that really, I think as a consumer, I, I really want to know that the mechanic has some real autonomy, but the reality is it doesn't always work that way. Well, you, you think about a bus company. I mean, they're they're typically operating in a, a relatively local environment, right? A local customer base, and those customers are the mechanics, friends, their family, their neighbors. You know, they want to make sure it's a safe experience for their friends and neighbors and family, just as as anybody else would. As that pilot in the plane would want to make sure that, that plane's safe. You know, for everybody on board, in addition to himself, herself. So same thing happens in the bus and motor coach industry. It's a very, very granular process, but it's very close to the customer. You know, the customer isn't some, you know, it's not like you're making Tylenol and the customers across the country and somebody you never see. This is somebody who's your neighbor that you're trying to protect. Yeah, got that. So you have this imbalance of supply and demand. 
the, the buses are, there, there's a lack of supply. There's an excess of demand. Uh, the inputs are all going higher in price, gasoline, labor, all those things are going higher. How, how are these bus companies uh, calculating what they're going to charge customers and how I mean, it's, it's got to be charged changing almost every week because, because yeah. the, the, it's a moving target here. How, what are they doing? Yeah, it is. And, you know, I would step back a little bit. If I go back a few years, I think it was an imbalance the other way. There was a lot more, a lot more companies. We've lost almost half of the companies in the industry in the last two years. Uh, a lot more equipment on the road. Um, we did have higher demand then than we do now, but we're getting obviously back to that. And, and at that point in time, you know, even though as an association, we don't really discuss rates, but when you look at the industry overall, the industry was completely undervalued for what they did. I mean, this is a half a million dollar plus piece of equipment. Um, as I've said to people before, it's got probably about the same value as a hotel room. Um, people are going into that hotel room for two or three or $400 a night, but they expect on a per person basis only be paying maybe 20 or $30 per person for use of that half million dollar piece of equipment. And so there was an imbalance the other way. Now that we're seeing you know, the market shift, the supply down, demand coming up, we're starting to see prices probably get up to where they should have been for the last 10 years. Um, you add fuel on top of that. You know, A lot of companies have put surcharges on to make sure they get reimbursed for that fuel. And that probably is changing on almost a daily basis. And then we've seen insurance rates go up anywhere from 20% to 50% to 100% in some cases over the last two years. You know, on top of that, the price of the equipment has gotten more expensive and then all the supplies have gotten more expensive. And then we add inflation to that. So it's, a, it's an upward spiral of cost and it's gotta be an upward spiral you know, of, uh, of pricing to keep, keep in pace. Because you want to, you know, you want to keep that equipment healthy. You want good drivers. You want to make sure, you know, that you can maintain it. You want good mechanics, and and you want that bus to run safely all the time. So you can't be short circuiting it and say, well, you know, even though everything's going up, I don't want to charge a customer anymore. You, you've got to be able to, to stay alive. Are your are your members reporting that their bottom lines are uh, are okay, or are they uh, are they not getting the numbers right? You know, I think I think they're doing better in getting the numbers right now today than, than they ever were. But the caveat to that is for, if I look at 2020, 2021, and 2022 this year, collectively in those three years, the industry and, and individual companies have lost almost two full years of revenue. So while the number's right, they're, they're digging out of a pretty deep hole. I mean, our industry in 2020 was down 85% from 2019. In 2021, we were down 60%. This year, we're still going to be down probably somewhere near 40%. So again, that's almost almost 200% over a three-year period, you know, that we're behind in. So, you know, as we're, the bottom line may be okay today, but it's not necessarily making up anywhere close to what, what they lost over the last couple of years. Is, is there any relevance to compare how air travel is doing compared to how you're doing? Why is air travel roaring back and you're yeah. not roaring back the same way? Yeah, I think I think there's a couple of reasons for that. Um, you know, air travel is roaring back. Air travel is also controlling, you know, controlling the number of units out there, right? So while every plane is full, there aren't as many planes and and out as there were before. They've got the same pilot shortage. In fact, some of the airlines are actually using buses to fill in the gaps because they don't have enough pilots 
Uh, there's a company called Landline that we've been we've been in communication with. They've been doing work for Delta, and, I'm sorry, for American and for United specifically, and they're they're kind of doing taking over their short hauls where there's not enough pilots um, because some of the big airlines are taking pilots from some of the regional airlines. Then there's no availability in the regional level to to move that that plane, and so for you know places, let's say from Philly to uh, Lehigh Valley, a couple of hours, hour and a half, couple hours away, you know, rather than put a plane there when you don't have enough pilots anyway, put a bus in that corridor. About, you know, when you figure getting to the airport early, you know, waiting, waiting between flights that you're connecting, about the same trip. So uh, the planes are facing the same same challenge that we are, uh, but they're using us to fill in some of the gaps and fix some of those challenges. That, that's interesting how the whole ecosystem works together yeah. and, and how that's happening. Uh, I mean, I, I really wouldn't have... Uh, thought about that, but that's an interesting uh, consideration. Are these, uh, are you guys experiencing in your industry uh, a lot of uh, interest from private equity companies to acquire any of the companies that you're, that are, that your members are? Yeah. You know, kind of, kind of ebb and flows. It's interesting. So when I first came to the association, came in 96, there was a, there was a big roll up going on. Uh, That company ended up rolling about a hundred or so companies together uh, sold it to a European company. Uh, there were some others that were doing roll-ups at about the same time. A couple of those roll-ups worked, a couple of them didn't and fell apart. And over the years, we've seen other equity companies come in there and, and start to do the same thing. We saw a lot of it going on back in, you know, I'll say 015 to 019, or 2015 to 2019. Um, not seeing quite as much today, but I think we'll start seeing that again. Uh, again, I think some of the private equity companies will look at it and say, you know, I'm glad we weren't in this business in the last two years, but this is a great time to come into the business. You know, at the same time, we've got a lot of owners, a lot of operators who are looking at it and saying, I weathered through the last two years. I'm done. It burned me out. Um, so it, it's a it's an interesting balance of, again, of supply and demand that uh, I think we'll see. I think we'll see more of the equity folks come in and, and start to pick up some of these companies. I mean, I mean, it sounds to me, and listen, this applies to every industry of every one of our listeners. Um, a lot of people are burned out. Prices yep. are probably down a little bit from where they were a year ago. And, and so it's probably a, an opportune time uh, for these, uh, for these money companies to come in and, and start making acquisitions, especially yep. uh, for some of these roll-ups that deal that uh, the, the roll-up that did a hundred companies uh, in the nineties, how'd that turn out after they sold it to the Europeans? So they t- sold it to the Europeans. The Europeans split it up and uh, and and kept part of it, got rid of part of it, and then uh, eventually sold it to an equity company, which sold to another equity company. <laughs> you know, it sounds like the brokers made more money than anybody else. <laughs> no, you're right. It's, it's like any. Like anything, the, the middleman, the lawyers, and everybody else makes money on the deal. Yeah, the the, the intermediaries make all the money. When you're yeah. moving something that often, boy, I'll tell you that uh, that's a, a lot of intermediary fees are getting moved. So, so what's so what's the future of this industry look like? I mean, what do you, what do you think? Is this a, a growing yeah. industry? Is it a, a bright outlook? Is it kind of a, a diminishing industry over time, or what? No, I think I think it looks great. I think there's huge opportunities uh, going forward. You know, the industry has changed so much in in the time that I've been at the association, you know, it's gone from, from, again, it's always going to be a family business industry. You know, when I look at the 15, 1600 companies that are remaining, you know, literally on two hands, I can count those that are, that are not family businesses that are corporations that are typically owned by, by equity groups. Um, There's no 
publicly traded companies anymore that I believe in our in our industry in the motor coach side. We had a couple. We had Greyhound. We had a company, a European company called uh, Stagecoach, and they were they were both traded on the market. But those are all private equity owned now. So when I look out, I think, okay, well, it's still going to be the same kind of industry, going to change, going to get more professional as it's continued to do over the years. Um, there's always going to be a demand to move a lot of people in mass. And, and when you look at the focus right now of this administration as an example, where the environment is such a big issue and where fuel prices are so high, you know, moving by bus is the most efficient way to move people. It's the cleanest way to move people on a per person basis. Uh, there's no cleaner way to move people than by motor by a motor coach on a per person basis. So, you know, I think our future is pretty pretty bright. Um, you know, we serve the customer like no other mode of transportation. We're flexible. You know, people talk about Amtrak and they pour billions of dollars into it, but you get outside of the corridor, you know, and and the train may come through once a day, or and that may be in the middle of the night somewhere. Where if you really need to move people in that corridor. You know, you can move them pretty quickly by putting a bus in there. Same thing when we talk about commuters. You know, one of the reasons that commuter buses work so well on the on the private bus side is that, you know, those rail lines that are in place or those subway lines that are in place, as the population shifted, as different areas of the region built up and built their built their, you know, housing developments up, you know, they didn't move the lines to go into those. And so the buses that can go into those move people out. So I, yeah, I think our I think our future looks great. And again, now that we are what I would say more closely right sized than we had been before, you know, and and there's an opportunity for these companies to to remain healthy. Um, I think we look great going forward. You know, the the one thing that uh, is really favorable for buses is that you don't have a hardscape. There's there's no rail, there's no track, there's no you know. I mean, it's it, there's no airport. It really, I mean, they can kind of go from almost anywhere. I mean, there are usually a bus depot or something, but uh, typically speaking, they just ride on the same road that everybody else rides on. And that makes it very simple. So is, is most of the decision to take a bus, is it a cost-based decision for consumers? How do consumers make the decision to, to take your mode of transportation instead of a different one? Yeah, well, there's a couple of things. Frequency is always a big decision in, in whether, you know, what mode you're going to take. You know, how, how often is it leaving? How quickly can I get there? You know, length of trip obviously is is a decision. You know, so for the bus motor coach industry, you know, two hours to four hours is certainly that that sweet spot, as we would say. You know, too far to drive, too close to fly, um, and, and then certainly cost. You know, is a factor as well. I mean, I you know when I I've got a meeting up in New York City in a couple of weeks, I'll I'll be in the bus, in part because I have to, um, but in no small reason, it's just as quick to go by bus as it is any other mode. Tickets, I was just pricing tickets early. It's $50. If I were to fly, it'd be over $500. If I'm on Amtrak, given the times I want to go, it's well over $100 each way. Um, and I get there at the same time. I mean, the bus gets there in about four hours. Amtrak is three hours and 45 minutes. And, uh, and if I take the plane, by the time I think about going to the airport early, parking, getting into the terminal, ending up in LaGuardia, having to commute all the way, you know, into town, if the plane runs on time, which it seems to rarely do in that corridor, um, you know, I've, I've still got a four-hour trip, at, you know, five times, ten times the price. So, great way to go in those, those short hops. Yeah. Well, listen, uh, I sure appreciate uh, you sharing your insights. And a lot of these uh, insights have a lot more to do with uh 
with the rest of our listener base than, uh, than just bus companies. I mean, this yeah. is really, it, 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 a lot of your stuff can be generalized to a lot of our stuff. And the promise of the show is to deliver the inside track, the best, the smartest, the fastest way to get something done. And, uh, and you have certainly done that. You know, you've kind of shared a lot of the insights, the inside track on what's happening in your industry and people that actually live up to the promise of the show. We refer to those people as advantage players, and that makes you an advantage player. And we appreciate you having been on the show with us. Yeah, thanks for having me, Joel. It's been a lot of fun. Well, listen, it's been, it's been great to have you, Peter. And uh, we'll publish your uh, contact information in the show notes if anybody needs to follow up. Okay. You've been listening to Profit from the Inside with Joel Block. For more insights and to learn more, visit joelblock.com. How about a shout out and a huge thanks to our podcast show producer, David Wolf, and the team at Autovita Studios. Profit from the inside wouldn't be possible without these wonderful professionals. To learn more or to find out how you can launch and produce your own podcast show, reach out to www.audivita.com. That's A-U-D-I-V-I-T-A.com. Produced by Audivita Studios. Connect your voice to the world.